Zachariah. But uh, there's a lot in this. This is more challenging, I think. Uh, and we're going to try to kind of work our way through just a step at a time. Um, I struggle to find exactly the pattern or the outline for these chapters. So I haven't got a, an overarching theme or outline. Uh, you know, I probably will someday if I live long enough, hopefully. You know, you keep studying something and eventually you start seeing the pattern. I'm more still kind of seeing the elements and uh, we'll eventually uh, perhaps uh, see a pattern. But, uh, but I do think this is really helpful. It's just that this kind of language in Zechariah is challenging. It's, it's using a lot of very figurative, spiritual concepts, um, a lot of analogies, and, and we just really have to kind of work through it. I mean, you know, it, the bad thing is when we take passages that we don't understand very well and we just ignore them. Don't do that. You know, if you don't understand it, keep working on it. That, that's what I've tried to do. I mean, there's still some passages I need to work on, but I've tried more than anything else in terms of um, uh, prioritizing my Bible study to try to study more the books I know least. I've got a few more that I've got to work on. But that's, that's kind of been my, my goal. Now, sometimes things come up and I need to teach this or that or the other thing, but I've tried to get around to books that I don't understand very well. And uh, if that's true of you and Zechariah, then keep working on it. And, and just keep realizing that with, with more effort and just more focus on a book, you'll learn more. And uh, take a book at a time and just work on it. You know, read it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Try to follow the train of thought, try to see into what's being said. So we're going to work on this the best we can, and uh, some of you may have studied this more than I and be able to have some helpful input. But chapter 9, can somebody read verses 1 to 8? The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the hand of Hadrach in Damascus is his resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all, and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, tired and sighting, Though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike her down, and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it, and be afraid. God will too, and shall ride in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of this people. I will take away its blood from its mouth, and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be, be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Let me just say this. There is a view of this passage that sees perhaps a shadowy fulfillment in some things Alexander the Great did. That may be true. I'm just going to look at it from the standpoint of the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. You see the Lord's eye on everyone, especially on Israel. And you see um, various places that God is ruling over. You see in verse 1, Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath. 
Those are all territories up north, like Syria, Aram. And then you see Tyre and Sidon. Now, according to 2 through 4, what were Tyre and Sidon's, like, um, strong points? Well, fortification and wisdom. So Tyre and Sidon had wisdom, defenses, and wealth. They were really wealthy. But what was the Lord going to do with Tyre and Sidon? Cast them into the sea. Yeah, and consume them with fire. The, the imagery in these first few verses presents the Lord as a conqueror. The Lord is vict a victorious warrior. So he conquers Syria to the north. He conquers Tyre and Sidon. And then in verse 5 and 6, what uh, cities are mentioned? Philistine cities, yes. Like what? Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. What's the one missing city? Gath. Remember why Gath was kind of a famous Philistine city? Goliath was from there. But it's interesting, in several of the prophets, they mention four of the five cities, but they do not mention Gath. That is true in Zephaniah and in Amos. And maybe the other one's Jeremiah. I don't know, I have to go back and look. Like three or, I think four, where he mentions all of the other four and not Gath. We assume Gath was destroyed and not rebuilt, and that's the reason they keep omitting that one. But he mentions these other four, and uh, what's going to happen to these Philistine cities in general? Good or bad? Bad, yeah. Doesn't sound good. Fear, great pain, disappointment, king perishing, not inhabited, cut off their pride. God is opposed to the Philistines. He's going to punish them. Now, you remember the Philistines most for their interactions with what Israelite uh, characters? David, Samson, Saul. Yeah. So you see the Philistines as essentially being enemies of God's people. I think that's the way we all look at them here. You know, that's why God bringing them down. Um, and so he's, he's, he's against the Philistines. Now look at verse 7. He says, And I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Now, the blood and the detestable things would probably refer to what? Yeah, idol worship. So like maybe the sacrificial meat. And if he removes it from between their teeth, what kind of an image does that give you? They were eating it. And maybe even they were... They were kind of clenched on it. They were trying not to let it go. And God just forcibly takes it out of their mouth. You know, he, it, it doesn't make any difference how far they are into that. God could just yank it right back out. There's no compromise with pagan practices. So... So God's judging the Philistines. He's taking away their pride. 
the end of verse uh, 6, I call off their pride. He takes away their idol sacrifice. He removes it from their mouth. He takes them from their teeth. And then he says, Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron, like a Jebusite. Now, somehow or other, this last part of verse 7 is a bit jarring. In fact, focus in on that. He's going to make the Ekron like a Jebusite. Remember anything about the Jebusites? David fought against them. Where were they? Jerusalem. Really, believe it or not, the Israelites never really exactly governed Jerusalem until David's day. It was a Jebusite city right there in the middle of Israel. Of course, you remember how they left the Canaanites and the various otherites, you know, stay around and they hadn't, you know, gotten rid of them. They let the Jebusites just kind of continue to rule in Jerusalem and David finally challenges them. Joab manages to take over Jerusalem and David makes it into his capital. But what happened to the Jebusites that had been in Jerusalem. They were just sort of incorporated among the Israelites, kind of like the Gibeonites were. Remember that <coughs> Joshua made with them in Joshua 9? In fact, there's one Jebusite, I wouldn't say he's famous. But some of you who are good students will remember his name from David's time period. Who was the semi-famous Jebusite? Arana. Yes, Arana. And remember how David was trying to get God to stop the plague that God had brought upon them because of the census. And God told him to go to the threshing floor of Arana in some translations, some parts, it's Ornan. That's, I think, the same person. The Jebusite and offer sacrifice. So there were Jebusites still around at that point. So the Jebusites just kind of are incorporated into uh, Israel. Um, so look at what he's saying. You know, after he's opposed the Philistines, then they will also be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. It looks to me like the point is God's going to actually convert Philistines and make them a part of his people. You know, there's two ways to conquer people. You can whip them or they can join you. Well, he's going to do a little bit of both with the Philistines. Somewhat it's going to be whipping them and somewhat it's going to be converting them. Now, you might think about Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, talking about the Philistines. Zephaniah 2, 6 and 7. So the sea coast will be pastures, with caves for shepherds and flocks for, folds for flocks, and the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. It's a prophecy to the Philistines that God's going to restore their fortune. Now, New Testament. Anything you remember about Philistia in the New Testament? 
There are references to two Philistine cities in the New Testament. Though one of them is a little different name than it was in the Old Testament. In the book of Acts. Gaza. Who was traveling toward Gaza? The Ethiopian eunuch. He was going on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza when Philip joined himself to the chariot. And then when Philip left, anybody remember where he first went to? Azotus. Azotus. That is the Greek word for the Old Testament, Ashdod. So evidently, I'm assuming, if he found himself there, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea, that Philip actually preached the gospel in Ashdod. So that may be a partial fulfillment of some of the Philistines being converted and becoming a part of the people of God. So what you see is God triumphing over his enemies. Those in the north, the Damascus area, over the uh, of Tyre and Sidon, and over the Philistines, though he triumphs over some of them in judgment, some of them in conversion, and they submit to him. But he says, I will camp around my house, verse 8, because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore. So he's promising protection and care for his people. So the Lord has his eye, verse 1, on Israel and on all men. He blesses his people, but he also judges and blesses people in other nations. Comments and thoughts on those first uh, eight verses. There's no doubt that some of this stuff you've got to look at more carefully or it just doesn't make any sense. So that's, that's my bet. I'll make my best attempt at uh, what I think he's saying and you can just keep working on it. Yeah. yeah, I think we think about the restoration of God's people, the building of the temple, the restoration of God's kingdom of Israel. Like, no matter what's going on and how the odds are stacked against them, God's kingdom, we say, marches on. And in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the uh, enemy nations, God's kingdom is moving forward. And we need to realize that today, when we're trying to build the church and spread the gospel in difficult areas, God's kingdom is going to prevail in the end in spite of the greatest difficulties out there. God is a victorious warrior. Amen. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Uh, you've got you've got several of these where you could argue that that the I is the Lord, and then he also refers to the Lord in the third person, and so that may be more of this Jesus and God kind of a thing. Okay, how about nine and ten? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay. Um, so, 
Verse 8, the oppressor doesn't come anymore. Verse 9, who does come? Your king is coming. How should they feel? Rejoice. Wonderful news. Their king is coming. The oppressor is not. The oppressor will bypass Jerusalem. But your king is coming to you. Now he talks about the character of the coming king. What's he like? He, what's the first thing he says? He's just. He's just. That's an important quality. You want a king to be just. He's fair. He's righteous. He always does the right thing. And then he is endowed with salvation. He is a saving king. If we ever use the word salvific, that would be a good word for this. But he's a saving kind of king. That's the kind of thing he does. And then he's humble. Now, how often do the words humble and king occur in the same sentence? You don't normally think of a king as being humble. In fact, I don't know if we even like to think of a king as being humble. You know, if we talk about somebody who's a proud king, that almost may be a positive thing in our mind. You know, what, what if it's an athlete? You know, he's a proud ball player. We almost think that's a virtue. He's a humble ball player. Well, <laughs> don't want him on your team, do you? You know, so here's a really odd thing to say about a king. He's humble. How does he show it? Riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, typically kings like what kind of an aura about them? Untouchable, pomp, regal. Yes, that's exactly right. Just this, uh, you know, kind of a splendor display. You know, a king wants to be kingly. You know, even when we have our uh, elections for president, sometimes people talk about the, the, the candidate really needs to look presidential. You know, you don't want a humble-looking presidential candidate. You want him to be kind of, um, I don't know, powerful and, and kind of uh, confident, maybe a little too confident. This is really dating me, and almost all of you are below this. Uh, but, but those of you old-timers, I remember the debate, the vice presidential debate, between uh, Benson and Quayle. That was way before most of your time. But Benson was 67 or something like that, a statesman from Texas, rather arrogant, but pretty competent. And Quayle was in his low 40s, but he looked like he passed for 25. And he kind of had a reputation for not being real cerebral. And uh, so, so and he was just perfect to look presidential. Quayle was saying, well, you know, they were always saying he was too young. He said, well, well, you know, President Kennedy, you know, was younger than I was when he was elected president. And Benson came back and he said, I knew President Kennedy. President Kennedy was a friend of mine. Mr. Quayle, you're no John F. Kennedy. You know, not, that was arrogant, that was prideful, that was smart-alecky, but it made him look presidential. 
It made him look like he was tough but important. He could say something like that and get by with it. You know, and, and we like a little arrogance, you know, a little swagger, you know. That wasn't Jesus. He didn't look presidential. He didn't look kingly. He really didn't. And there's one of the things they had against him. He wasn't like the kind of Messiah that they wanted. He didn't strut around and, you know, act like he's a big, big time guy and everybody needs to just, you know, worship the ground he walks on. And so you saw that in what he wrote in on. Now, I honestly think Jesus could have fulfilled this passage and there never been an animal involved. I think this is a figurative picture. But there are several times when Jesus will fulfill a figurative picture to the letter just to kind of make us make sure we get it. And so he really did ride into Jerusalem on that donkey's colt. Now, typically, what kind of amount would you expect the king to ride into the capital on? A stallion. Or maybe even in that era, elephant, yeah. But not a donkey's colt. I mean, that seems so humble. And that's the point. Jesus was a humble king. So we've got to really change our thinking about what we're trying to become. You know, how do you like your, uh, this is almost, I'm using accommodative language, but how do you like your preachers and your elders and things like that, your Bible class teachers? Do you like them to be humble? You know, not seeking to impress and not uh, acting like they're big and important? Do we kind of like uh, a preacher or an elder and kind of show off? You know, he, he really, he's something else. You know, he comes here, here, you know, and he puts on kind of a show and he kind of, kind of really tries to be important and, you know, he just acts presidential. That's not what we want. You know, we're not trying to be glorious in any worldly sense. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. That was the problem with the Corinthians. Worldly wisdom and pride. And, and they were just, they wanted something impressive. They wanted something to show off. It's a problem with a lot of these church growth things. You know, we're trying to impress our friends with us so that we can attract them to us because we look good, because we're friendly, because we're dynamic, because we're exciting, because we're helpful. You know, we want them to really like us and think highly of us and feel like we're really competent. We're really, you know, talented. and We're really the kind of people they want to be around. No. We're not trying to put on a show. We need to follow our king who is humble. You know, it didn't look good for a king to ride in the capital on a donkey's cold of all things. You know, if you had been in marketing and you had been advising Jesus, you'd have said, you've got that all wrong. Don't do that one again. You can't write in like that. People aren't going to respect you like that. We're not trying to get people's respect because we're somebody. So I, I really like this picture. I, I think we need it. I, I, pride is such a temptation. For me, maybe for most of us. I think we have to really be careful to try to do things as humbly as we can, to try really hard not to do the things that look presidential. And then look at the achievements. 
And verse 10 cuts off the chariot and the horse and the bow of war. And he speaks peace. Now the chariot, the horse, and the bow of war were the, like the apparatus of war. So he's, he's really making, is this a peaceful kingdom? He brings peace to the nations. And uh, he unites them. Ephraim and Jerusalem were brought together. And his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the end of the earth. Uh, typically, Israel ruled at the greatest extent of their boundaries, from the river down to the river of Egypt. Yeah, down to the border with Egypt. The river, of course, the Euphrates. But he rules from the river to the other end of the earth. <laughs> He's got the whole thing. It's a universal rule. It's not that Jesus isn't king. It's that he doesn't act like a king with pride and arrogance. He doesn't need to. He is a great God because of who he really is, not because he worked on his image. So, you know, God, 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 the king is coming, you know, and the king is just, he saves, he's humble, his achievements, he has this rule of peace, it's united rule, and it's universal. Comments and questions on 9 and 10. Yes. Well, I think Jesus, too, was reflecting the type of kingdom that he was the king of. You go back to Isaiah chapter 2, and it's a transition, it's, it's a paradigm shift. It's not, this kingdom is, is uh, one with gardening tools and not spears and swords, and so Jesus is showing that. Amen. I agree. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes. David definitely both started out humble uh, as kings. Yeah, you're right. Incredibly humble. And that's the type of person God's looking for. Uh, the Bible spends a lot of time on arrogance and humility. And it's not because God had a certain length he was aiming for to get some kind of bonus. It's because he knows us better than we know ourselves. Any person, whether it's a preacher, who people mean well to when they tell him, that's the best lesson I've ever heard, or whatever they might tell a preacher. I'm sure you've heard a few things along those lines along the way. They don't mean to make you prideful. They're not actually trying to send you to hell. But if you're not careful, they will. Amen. And that's, that's the way <coughs> elders are, too. People don't mean to make elders be prideful by saying, why, wow, you're such a great shepherd, and I really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, we don't mean to do people harm. But we need to really look at making sure that when we talk <coughs> about spiritual things, we give God the glory, you know, and and it's clear to them, and it's clear to us, and it's clear to everybody that God's the focus. And I think then our compliments can actually help people, as opposed to certainly, you know, potentially hurting them. But the Bible spends a lot of time on areas of humility because God knows we need it. Paul would uh, compliment people by telling them, I thank God all the time for what he's doing in you. And recognize the Lord in that, not recognize them as accomplishing something. We have to really be careful about that. And we can, uh, we can be very careful. Yes? I was just wondering if two donkeys might just be a picture of kingship. Uh, Genesis 49, the blessing on Judah, where the scepter shall not depart. In verse 11, he ties his colt to the vine, the donkey's colt to the choice vine. 
And so uh, Jair, one of the judges, has 30 sons riding on 30 donkeys. Saul is pictured uh, head and shoulders taller than everyone, and he's first pictured looking for his donkeys. And is, is there an aspect to that that that's just a picture of kingship? There's a possibility of that. There is a couple other passages that might lead in that direction. So maybe, but against that, I put the fact that he says in the text here it's humble. And that seems to be the point of the text. It's also to some extent seems to be to me the point when Jesus fulfills it. And some of these other passages, for example, in Genesis 49, 11, where he ties his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he goes on to say he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grace. I think the point is not having the donkey. I think the point is things are so prosperous, you use the, the vine as a hitching post. You know, you've got so much grape juice, you wash your, your clothes in wine. <laughs> you know, you write, wash your robes in the blood of grace. You know, it's like, wow, that's prosperous. When you get to where you can use grape juice as detergent, you got a lot of grape juice. And so I think that's more the point in that one. So that would be a minority view worth considering. But I, but I, I tend to think he's connecting the humble here with many mountain Almost always, there's another side to things. And, and it is worth considering the possibility that, that there were some passages where donkeys seem to be a normal mount for a king. So that, that gives you pause, at least. It's worth considering the other side of that. Other thoughts? Um, Matthew 21, it does say on a colt, the colt of the beast burden, when it's quoting passage. So it almost seems to lean toward the humility. Good point. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, but yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, good point. Yeah, there's a lot of times, I mean, you know, when you when you think about something a certain way, always be willing to think about it the other way, you know, test it, and, uh, you know, make sure that, well, is there any evidence on the other side of that? Because every once in a while you can think of something a certain way, it sounds pretty good, but then you start opening your eyes up and you realize, wait a minute, but there's all these things that don't fit with that, maybe I've got the wrong idea. All right. Um... Another thing, Please. the uh, the donkey didn't even belong to Jesus. It borrowed. Right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. That that also seems more humbling. Yeah. I agree. Other thoughts? I think this is a good time to take a break. This next section just requires some concentration. So let's go ahead and take about ten minutes break. Would somebody read eleven to seventeen? As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the water of the pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore justice to you. For I have been to Judah, my bow. It is the bow with Ephraim. Raise up your sons of Zion. Against your sons of Judah. Make not the Lord a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue the slingshot. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood by basin, like the corners of the altar. The love of their God 
the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of the crown, lifted like a banner over his head. For how great is its goodness, and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. You know, just thinking about what we just read, makes me want to just go ahead and read the passage I alluded to earlier. I think it's helpful to remember in connection with this. It's 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. And just think about this. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or tongue the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I think that applies to a passage like this in Zechariah. I don't know if he knew what he was saying. I mean, the Lord was inspiring him to write this. He may not have gotten it. But if he had asked, what's this all about? It was about us. He was writing about the blessings that would come to us. So, look at this, kind of a step at a time. In verse 11, because of the blood of the covenant, I set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, what should you think about being set free from the bottomless pit? From the waterless pit, rather. Free, free from the pit. Can you think of any times that God's people were freed from the pit? Literally? Jeremiah. Joseph! Jeremiah! Jeremiah 38, you remember the reference to Joseph. So there have been times when God's people have actually been delivered from a pit. Um, I think the deliverance from Babylon is sort of a deliverance from the pit. But I really think here, as he looks forward, you know, he's using the prophetic past tense. This is what he will do, but it's so, God said it, so it's sure to happen. He's going to deliver us from the pit of sin and death. You know, and how does he do it? Through the blood of the covenant. You remember Matthew 26, 28, and so forth? Jesus shed blood delivers us from the pit. I think that's the idea of this. Then he says in 12, return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. God provides safety and strength for us. We need to rely on him. A mighty fortress is our God, kind of an idea. And then I love, starting in 13, but wow, this, this blows your head. For I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. Now part of this just shows the idea of God being the victorious warrior. But what are God's weapons? Yes! His people. He's using his people as the weapons to conquer their enemies. Maybe when he thinks about stirring up your son, Josiah, against your sons, O Greece, some have seen a partial fulfillment of, of that when uh, the Maccabees triumphed over Antiochus Epiphanes and so forth 
in the intertestamental period, okay? I can see that. But I suspect it, the, the real greater reference is to the victory that of, 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 you know, gospel preachers over Greek philosophy. What about Acts 17 when God uses Paul to, to teach the, uh, you know, Athenian uh, philosophical speculators uh, about the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the true God and, and that sort of thing. So I think the saints triumph over Christ. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord will defend them. You see the idea of the Lord is a warrior. He appears, he blows the trumpet, he, he sends, he defends, he saves. And no enemy can stop the Lord's victorious march. You see the triumphal uh, military campaign of the Lord. You see the greatness of the Lord. And, and what do you see his people doing? He says, they will devour and trample on the sling stones. <laughs> That's a cool idea. You know, you got these missiles that are being hurled against them, these sling stones, they devour and just trample on them. <laughs> so much good they did, you know, the enemies. They will drink and be boisterous as with wine. They will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the all corners of the altar. They are, they are drunk on the blood of their enemies. They are victorious warriors. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For there is the stones of a crown sparkling in his head. These God's people are his crown jewels. Now, there's some lessons in this. This is clearly highly figurative. And some of this is just like, wow, kind of blows your mind. Uh, you, you, obviously, you know, surely we understand June and Ephraim were not a literal bow and arrow. You know, things like that. But, but what should we get out of this? Well, one thing. When we're in Christ, and we see the power and magnificence of Christ, we need a more victorious spirit. The Lord overcomes. The Lord is the victor. He's already whipped Satan. And he's going to whip him until he's gone. Book of Revelation is awesome. But the ultimate message is Christ won. And we will win in him. We need more of that triumphant feeling. We need to be more ready for conflict. We are at war. This is a battle. Ephesians chapter 6. Our, and our war is not just against flesh and blood. There are beings way greater than we can imagine that are fighting against us. Therefore, we need to be strong in the strength of his mind and put on his armor and fight in his way and his will. But we need to be ready for that conflict. What? So this is the one of the parts of the gospel I think we don't do well. You know, I think, you know, there's some neglected kinds of things. Maybe it's just me. But, but it seems like we neglect this uh, warrior uh, battle imagery and mentality. I think that's the spirit of our age. So what do we need to think about? Think about fighting against temptation. Think about whipping the devil when he comes at us with his deceptive lies trying to talk us into something. When he tells us, man, that forbidden fruit, you're going to love it. You know, you, 
You, you've avoided it for so long now. You've done so well, but you at least need to get one. You need to get a taste of that. Everybody else is enjoying it. It'll, it'll be it'll be still good for you, you know, and, and you just, you know, it's just it's just not fair for you to, to be deprived of that. And all those things that the devil keeps whispering in your ear as he keeps trying to talk you into giving in on your pet sin. We gotta be warriors. We gotta be soldiers that, that stand firm. We say, no, I will not do that. I do not want any part of that. You think about whatever sin you have struggled with. And think about developing a, a warfare mentality. You don't do it. You stand with the Lord and you do not intend to give Satan one centimeter. Think about fighting against false doctrine. I understand that there have been some arrogant and very biased uh, approaches to trying to fight our own uh, just because we're stubborn and, and, and tradition bound and we just like a good fight and we like to promote ourselves. You know, obviously the, the servant of the Lord must not strive and be kind to all, patient when wrong, and in gentleness recovering those who are in opposition. Second Timothy 2, 24-26. It's not that any military tactics is okay. But, but, but if we were honest with the passages in the New Testament, just the New Testament, that deal with false teaching, we are at war. And we've got to stand firm for the truth. And we've got to fight against error. You know, there's some passages that I just don't think we ever read very much. Read 2 Peter 2 sometimes. Read Jude sometimes. They are so strong in, in exposing the false teachers and their false heart, and their false motives. Think about 2 Corinthians. Think about Galatians. Think about Colossians. Think about 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And, you know, by the time we get done, there's a whole big part of the New Testament that is devoted to defending the truth. Think about Paul arguing with his opponents in the book of Acts. We've got to defend the truth. We've got to fight against false teaching. We don't like that. We want, we're so influenced by this idea everything's beautiful in its own way. We want, it, we want everybody to see us as basically a good evangelical church. You know, I hope you're not like that, but I think most Christians, what we really like is for our, our, our relatives and neighbors to think, you guys good. You, you guys are just as as uh, open-minded as any of these other nice evangelical churches that are family-oriented and basically moral. And, and we've got to resist the temptation to want to make sure everybody sees us as, as really cool, good people that we don't think anybody's going to be lost. We've got to stand up for what's right. We've got to teach the truth and it's not going to make us popular. It didn't make the first century Christian they weren't seen as just good, nice Jews that believed that everybody was going to be okay. That's why there were conflicts. I mean, Paul said in Galatians 6, if I still preach circumcision, why are they persecuting me? <laughs> you know I'm not teaching that. That's why they're so upset with me. You know, and then think about 
warfare in terms of spreading the gospel. I think we need to have more of a, of a you know, military mentality. We need to attack But we're not fighting against people. But we're fighting Satan to liberate And there's a lot of people who need to be free. There's a lot of people who need to hear the gospel. And, and, and we're so, I condemn myself in this, but we've got to change this. We're so afraid somebody's going to look at us cross-eyed and say, well, they're going to think we're fanatic, that we pull our punches. We just don't talk. You know, we're content to sit at home and watch our little TV programs and play our little video games and, and do our little Facebook chatting or whatever. Well, there's all kinds of people in the world that are going to be lost. The people all around us are going to be lost. We can't save them all because some of them are going to be That's fine. When we try to present the gospel to them, we offer that. They don't want to listen. Well, they, they didn't listen to Jesus too. That's okay. You know, he told Ezekiel, he told Isaiah, he told Jeremiah, they won't listen to preaching. So we just keep preaching. We keep talking to people. We keep offering the gospel to them. We keep talking more. There's quite a number in, in this uh, uh, Davidson County and surrounding counties. So it's going to be a while before we get to all of them and find out at least one time they said they wouldn't listen. Then we need to go back around again, you know, because some people say yes the second time or the third time the fourth time. And then there's people elsewhere. When you get to all this region evangelized, there's people all over the world that need to talk. We need to have more of that, that spirit of mission. And, and I love these passages because it, it, it rivals you up. And it, it makes you feel like a soldier. It makes you want to fight. We need to fight. Not each other. We need to fight Satan on the issue of temptation. We need to fight the false teachers. And we need to fight to liberate people through the gospel and bring them into the kingdom of the Lord. So this is a great passage. And we just need these passages and need to think about it. God will bless us. We have wonderful reasons to come to the stronghold. Thoughts and comments on this section of the lesson. Yes. It, it makes me think of two passages in Second Corinthians in particular about our identity, number one, in 2.14, that uh, thanks be to God when Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we are captains turned soldiers. But at that later passage, we have a lot of power at our fingertips. And in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, uh, verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive obedience to Christ. Amen. Great passage. Other thoughts? Gary. Yes. Another thought that comes to my mind is when we, what you said is absolutely true. We've got to be more uh, aggressive in defending between saving souls. And I think it ultimately comes down to the issue are we going to fear God or fear people? When Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, you know, if, if I fear man, I, I will no longer assert this Christ. And I think if we look around us, you know, in uh, the world, especially among our institutional brethren, uh, it's no longer distinctive uh, gospel plea. They just want to blend in with the rest of the environment. That's our danger. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah. 
Gary, I agree with the with the warrior attitude, but Paul also told Timothy how we should attack. He told them that the Lord's bond servant shouldn't be quarrelsome, um, should be uh, able to teach and patient, um, with gentleness, correcting. I think the, the one of the, one of my uh, old friends coined it this way, you don't club the unbeliever over the head with the gospel. You present it in a level-headed um, manner so that they see the sense in it. And they're apt to come back um, to that message when they, when they get into trouble or when they come, come up with trials or when they're looking for that salvation ultimately. Um, and so a lot, a lot, I've seen a lot of attack toward some new ideas and some some very antithetical ideas that have come up. But we need to keep that level head, that gentleness, meekness, Christ-like spirit when we are attacking that as well. Because we don't want to drive those people away by our attitude in that in that respect. And that was the passage that I started with, that 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, which is very important for us to maintain the spirit that the Lord wants us to have and the motive the Lord wants us to have. The challenge for us is to take our mindset and approach from the Lord and His Word not from what seems best to us. Now, you know, I've, I see a lot of need for us to do a lot of Bible reading and just think, okay, what was the approach? How did Jesus deal with people? How did Paul deal with people? How did the prophets deal with people? And so forth and so on. How did they approach opposing false teaching? How did they approach rescuing people who were in sin? And I think you could say a number of things, but I think that's where we start. We don't start with, here's what's going to work next. I always worry about this when we start that. Let's start with, okay, what, what would you see as the principles in Scripture that would help us know how to fight the fight them. Now, one thing that you would say about that is Jesus didn't deal with everybody the same way. There were he, he didn't he didn't uh, you know snuff out a smoldering wick. You know, he didn't crush he didn't crush a bruised reed. And you see his tenderness and gentleness in some things. On the other hand, Jesus said some very very, very strong thing. He was very frank. We're, I'm preaching through Matthew on Sunday morning. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, every step we go is just painful. Because it's like it steps on us right where we're sensitive. Then you look at Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders who are essentially false teachers. And, well, if, if we started talking like Jesus talked, what would people think about us? 
wow, you just don't talk to people that way. Well, Jesus did. We're going to be like Jesus. There's going to be moments where that's our approach. And so I'm here greatly being too influenced by the spirit of our world. I think I have been. Honestly, I think I probably have a reputation for being pretty frank, pretty direct, pretty blunt. I personally think I'm not nearly as much as I ought to be. I was really following the Lord there. Here's something I've noticed about myself. Maybe you've noticed this about yourself. I, I, I'm close to keeping myself out. But one of the things I realize, the people I love the most, I warn the most, and I correct the most. The people I don't care about, I tend to distance myself from and not bother. That's really awakened me to something. I need to love people. But it's really true. I tell some of my best friends, I know I'm really challenging you a lot. And what that means is I really care a lot about you. I, I can tell that consistently. Because it's exactly what happens. When you really love somebody, you care about them enough that you'll tell them when you think they're wrong, and when you think they need help, and when you think they need to change. And the more we love people, I notice myself doing that. I'll go to door to door and knock on doors. And it scares me. I don't like it. Once I get into it, it's fine. When I first start, I don't like it. And so I'm, I'm shy, and I'm, you know, I'm Gary, I'm talking folks about reading the Bible. Do you like to do much of that sort of thing? Do you ever do much of that sort of thing? And I like to read the Bible with people in their homes, and I'm looking for somebody who might do something like that. You know, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I don't say that very well. But you know, somebody opens the door to me. And we talk for a second. And there's somebody that, just right there, I feel some bond with. You know, there's some openness, there's something there, and you just look at them in the eye, and you just kind of like them. It's kind of, you know, do you ever get that way? You just kind of immediately care about them. And they say, you know, I just really don't care much about spiritual things. You know? And, and normally I'll just say, okay, bye. You know, I've got other people to teach. But if I, if I felt something there, I'll a lot of times say, you know, why don't you? You know, you really ought to. You know, it's really important. You know, why do I do that? Because I care about them. So the more we love people, the more we're going to be outspoken and the more we're going to defend the truth. So there's a balance and, and trying to be exactly where God wants it to be is difficult. But I think it's very important we start from the work. We don't start from the result. We want to start from the result. Go get an advertising agency and they're going to tell you how to promote your product. And they're going to tell you how to make people like you. And they're going to tell you how to grow your church. And we, if, we, if our goal is to grow this church, hey, don't do it the way the Bible says. Because that's not the way it's going to grow. If you want to swell the church, there's a whole lot of other things. Be really positive, tell everybody what they want to hear. You know, be, have a lot of exciting programs and things like that. But if you want to help people be right with God, then let's start always from the scriptures. And let's think, okay, what would be the right approach biblically? And there's a balance. So consider the ideas from 2 Timothy 2. That's important. Consider other passages that really develop more of a spirit of, of, of battle. And, and, and let's try to stay as close as we can to the balance God would have us have.
That's a challenge for all thoughts and comments. Uh, I remember well, we're talking about uh, it's hard to know when you know because sometimes we start you know if we confront something we're going to start starting an argument or a disagreement and I think it's, it's tough to figure out when when we need to stop I remember years ago I actually contacted you about this and you texted me that verse uh, about being quarrelsome and I think you were trying to tell me you need to stop now, you know, because I cared about this person deeply, and they were just in opposition to everything I said. And you were just telling me to, to give, you know, to let them go because they didn't want to hear it. And I think that's the point, and I, I remember that because you know you can tell when people don't want to listen, they don't want to hear it anymore, but you're still beating it out, you know, and you're still throwing verses at them and saying. Why don't you see this? You know, and, and that's I think being don't don't uh, cast your pearls before swine. They'll never appreciate it. So yes, there's a time to shake the dust off your feet and move forward. Definitely, there is. Uh, a lot of things to think about. You know, let's just keep studying and thinking about these things and trying to, to fill ourselves more with the, the spirit that Christ would have us have. Other thoughts? Yes. You're right, we don't. And so we can't always maybe be as perfect in adapting our approach to what Jesus was. But we can still follow the kinds of things that you love. Yes. We also think that there's, there is somewhat of a difference in how we approach an unbeliever and how we approach false teachers. And I think that when Jude says contempt of faith, that there is a time when somebody's a false teacher that, I don't know, I just see a lot of, of quotes or things that happen to be on Facebook or spread around more and more that are coming from false teachers. And maybe that particular thing they said is good or an okay statement. Like, it might be true. But I, I see more like in the church, it seems like we don't, there's a lot more this desire to identify with anybody who calls themselves a Christian, even if it's false teaching. Yeah, and we've got to be very careful about that because it's easy for us to have the motive of wanting to join with nice religious people and so the motive of trying to be faithful to the Lord. And that's a challenge for us. We really need to keep our heart on the Lord and be exactly where the Lord is. That's the thing. We're always trying to fill ourselves with God and be as close to Him and His attitude toward things as we can be. And that's a challenge because we don't live in a world that's like yeah, again, trying to find that balance is very hard. We may not get it perfectly. Certainly, we need to be gentle with others, even correcting them who are in opposition. But I think on the other side of it is we have to have reach a point sometimes where we are willing to draw a line in the sand and say, this is wrong. Amen. And we will not tolerate that, and I will not tolerate that. So, so there's, there's, there's two sides of love. It's sometimes very tender, sometimes it's very tough. 
really just, like you said, trying to follow Jesus' example would be about a, the best guide in every one of those situations. Amen. Yes. In warfare, there's lots of different tactics and weapons. And just the same way in reaching people, there's various ways to reach people. Um, it's, it's wisdom to do that. And you're not going to gain that immediately. Jude 22 and 23, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, that's exactly what they say. Not everybody is to be approached the same way. Not everybody's in the same situation. Some you show more mercy to, some you yank out of the fire, and some you're even scared because of being contaminated by the garment of the flesh. So there's a lot of different approaches. Uh, just playing more on the warfare analogy, I think a lot of times... The problem is, and things that we have to be careful is just identifying who the enemy is, and the enemy is Satan and and his agents. And nine times out of ten, the people that we're talking to, whether they're brethren that are opposed to us, whether they're unbelievers, whether they're people preaching and teaching things that are different than what we believe, they're all victims of Satan. They're all caught in the crossfire they're deceived, some of them are wrong, but I think we still need to view them as children of God who have been deceived by the enemy. And that helps our attitudes when we deal with them. We still fight against what they're saying, we still stand our ground, but we do that with love because we realize that they have been um, they've been tricked by the enemy. The enemy Which would be the point of 2 Timothy chapter 2. That's really what uh, what Paul ends up saying there when he says uh, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2.26. So it's the idea of some people are, are victims. I don't mean in the sense that they're not responsible, but they're still, the devil has trapped them, he's held them, and we're trying to bring them out of that, to rescue them from the devil's trap. Now, the thing we've got to remember in thinking about that is, and this is hard for me, too. That's not true of everybody. I think one of the most disconcerting things to me is to see in the Scriptures that there is a good bit about false teaching that shows really horrible attitudes and a horrible heart on their I think we have a hard time believing anybody could be like that. But there are people like that. There are false teachers who want followers, who want money, who want to justify themselves, who don't have a good heart, who aren't trapped by Satan. They are the trappers. They are being used by Satan, yes, but they are on the, they are on the attack. And so we've got to balance this passage Versus, say, 2 Peter 2 and Jude and other passages that show, on the other hand, there are some false teachers. They don't have a big heart at all. And, and they're out to get us. You know, think about Paul's attitude toward uh, the Judaizing teachers in Galatia. He said, I wish they'd just let the knife slip and cut off the whole organ. You know, I mean, that was pretty harsh. It was pretty strong. It was very strong for them. They were, they were spying out. They've infiltrated to spy out our liberty and Christ. And so there are, there are times when, obviously, people don't have good attitudes at all, and they're not trapped. They're, they're aggressors. Trying to draw that line. 
That's what's challenging to us. But let's keep in mind both sides of that. Let's not be, you know, just everything needs to be blasted with a bazooka. No, that's not true. Just because somebody sees everything exactly the way I see it doesn't somehow make them a false teacher. On the other hand, let's not think that, well, everybody's basically good and everybody's basically fine. It doesn't really matter what we teach or believe or practice. There's a balance in there that's biblical, and that's what we're trying to see. Yeah, okay. First Corinthians 15, 57, says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I think sometimes the problem that we have is that we forget that we're going to win eventually. We approach things with people, uh, sometimes with desperation, with anger, because it's almost like we're afraid we're going to lose. Or we're afraid that, um, that our labor may be in vain. But it's important, I think, for us to remember that we're supposed to just go out and do what we're supposed to do. We don't have to attack people. We can defend the truth without you know, take, making things personal, without um, responding to people in anger, uh, and just know that down the road, this doesn't, how this situation turns out doesn't matter to the ultimate victory of, of God and His people. Yeah, we certainly need to trust the Lord and Obviously, we're not the key in anything. The Lord is. Um, I just don't. Everything, everything you you know, you think about different ways to look at it. I do believe we're in a real battle that makes a difference. But I do think we trust the Lord in that battle. Yes. Um, Yeah. Just there's such a thing as righteous anger. Yeah. And there's a time for us to do it. I do agree in general being angry is not helpful. Um, we see mostly people being angry because they make things all about themselves. And we see that even in ourselves. But there's a time to be angry on God's behalf. And certainly, I hope that nobody who's above the age of five would argue that there's real evil in the world and there's a real battle going on. The victory is ours. I agree 100%. We shouldn't make it all about us. But... Uh, there's a time to be angry. There's a time to be forceful. There's a time to make people mad. And there's a time to not be afraid of that. Amen. If we're going to follow the example of Jesus at all, first off, the main area to follow in is when we suffered on the point. He left us that example for us to follow in his steps. That's the main area where we can be confident we should 100% be like Jesus because it's a direct quote from Scripture. But there's a lot of other areas in his heart. We don't know people's hearts like Jesus did. He, from what I can tell on purpose, made people angry quite often. Uh, probably in general, that's not the approach for us when we have limited knowledge. But there's a time where maybe everything else has failed. And to have any chance of doing good with somebody, you probably ought to go for trying to make them angry. Who cares if they're angry at you anyway? Man, it's not about you. It's about bringing glory to God. I'm very concerned with people liking me. You might not know it, but it's true. I really want people to like me. Who cares whether people like me? And who cares whether people respect me? I want people to respect me really bad. They need to respect God. They need to respect Jesus. They need to get them to Jesus. It's hard to follow the example of Jesus in a lot of areas. There's areas where 
the way he teaches in raising Lazarus from the dead, I'd be mad at him till this day if I was one of the apostles. Probably he's asleep. Yeah, he's asleep. On purpose, not clear. There's a lot of things we probably can't pull off like Jesus did. And when we don't know people's heart, I do agree we, we have to be very careful in, in trying to follow some of the things Jesus did because he knew their heart. And therefore, he had a lot more room to do some things that maybe we just can't do. But we should not ignore the fact that he on purpose made people angry. There's no other way to look at it from my, what I can tell. I mean, he on purpose made people so angry, well, they killed him. would be a good good uh, summary. Yeah. Well, think about Stephen. You know, Stephen didn't know people's hearts. I'm not even sure I want to say he was trying to make people angry. And that was the result. They could have made people saved. They could have listened and changed. That's what he would like for them to have done. But we shouldn't. We shouldn't shrink back from the fact people may get angry and may get upset because we support the truth. I really believe Stephen cared about the people who were preaching. Do we pray for God to forgive their sins when they were stoning him? But when he cared, what did he say? I mean, wow. I mean, he knew they were already upset with him. That was clear. He was kind of called on the carpet. Then he said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who have previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. That does not sound like somebody who's trying to win friends and influence people. That's like somebody who cares. Cares about them and is willing to warn them about the serious situation they're in. But if somebody preached like that today... We would be we'd be horrified, wouldn't we? You know, if they actually said that to somebody, to a group of people, and so that's why. You know, I believe that I am much too worried about what people what people think about me, and I am not as direct and forceful at all. I just see these things, and I realize. It's not that I don't need to be gentle and patient and not self-seeking all that. There's certainly plenty of opportunity for that. That's easier for me. What's hard for me is to, at the right moment, speak like Stephen did and, and realize there is right and wrong. There are things that are from God and there are things that are from Satan. And there are moments when I need to stand up and I need to speak the truth. And there are going to be times when people are not wrong. And they're going to be angry with me. And that's so be it. Now, I don't do, I shouldn't do it because, you know, I'm, one, I'm some egotist who just likes to tell people off. It's not that at all. But it is. I love the Lord enough. I'm going to speak what he wants me to speak. That's what I need that. I need a lot more. There's all kinds of anger. And we just need to keep thinking, studying, praying, encouraging each other. It's a good discussion. It's good when we're bringing up different ways to look at this. Because in any given situation, I think everything that's been said would be applicable. The question is, what situation are we in? And what does our spirit need to be? I'm inclined to move forward from here and get this next chapter in, at least part of it.